0: The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com/slash premium. It only costs five dollars a month. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation, to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. It was another strong week in the stock market thanks to a hopium-inspired rally that the Fed may pause in its rate hikes by the summer, The Dow Jones ended up about one and three quarters percent on the week, finishing with a strong day. Dow Jones was up almost 400 points today to close out a relatively strong week. S&P did even better than the Dow, up 1.9 percent. Russell 2000 up even two percent, and the leader, the Nasdaq Composite, was up 2.7 percent. Of course, the more speculative the stock the bigger the gain look at the pump in the arc innovation etf up 5 and a quarter percent the only speculative asset left out of the rally parade were the cryptocurrencies which were down on the week mainly due to the big declines that we had today i'll talk about that a little later in the podcast but the grayscale bitcoin trust actually finished the week down 1.8% so in the opposite direction of risk assets but also in the opposite direction of safe havens like gold, which had a solid week up 2.5%. Gold had a very successful test of the 1800 support level, and it closed the week at about $1,856 an ounce. And the gold stocks did even better. The GDX was up 6% on the week. And probably more important than the gain was the fact that the GDX rose every day of the week. Five out of five days were up. GDXJ up 6.3% on the week, despite having one day that was slightly down. The interesting thing, too, about the gold stocks is they held up pretty well on the sell-off on Thursday morning, which initially had sent stocks tanking until they were rescued by Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic, who, in a Q&A, mentioned that he thought it was likely that the Fed would pause in its rate hikes by mid to late summer. And that's all the market needed. The pause by the summer. Despite the fact that Bostick also said some things that might have indicated even higher rates for longer. Remember, everybody is still data dependent on the Fed, but the bulls were grasping for straws and this is the one they grabbed. And that sparked a sharp turnaround in the markets. In fact, if you look at where the Dow closed today versus where it was on Thursday's low, that's a 2 and a quarter percent gain. Same thing with the S&P, even a bigger swing from Thursday's low to Friday's close, a 3% rally, and the Nasdaq Composite swung by 4% from the Thursday low to the Friday close. Basically, all of the weekly gains were attributable to the Thursday, Friday rally, which was 100% the result of Fed speak about the potential for a pause. Now also supporting the case for a pause was a bunch of weak economic data coming out all week. In fact, we didn't get any stronger than expected data yet still weak until today. But looking back at some of the data that came out during the week, durable goods for January down 4.5%. It was supposed to drop by 4%, instead 45 What they expected was bad. What they got was even worse. And as a matter of fact, they revised down the prior month from up 56 to up 5.1%, although ex-transports, it was better than expected. Looking at the Dallas Fed Manufacturing Survey for February, the consensus was 9 We ended up with minus 13, way below the low end of the consensus range, which was minus 9.5. Even the most optimistic estimate was a minus 2. So they were looking for weak, and they got much weaker. That was even worse than the prior month, which was minus 8.4. And the production index went from a plus 0.2 in January to a minus 2.8 in February, The trade deficit came out worse than expected for January. This is just in goods, the merchandise trade deficit, which is the bigger number because the unified deficit includes the surplus that America still enjoys in services. They were looking for a $91 billion deficit for the month. It came in at $91.5 billion. That is a huge number. Any way you look at it, that is enormous. I remember that the merchandise trade deficit that led to the 1987 stock market crash, the number that was so horrific that it was one of the primary catalysts for the 1987 stock market crash, was we had a $17 billion merchandise trade deficit in one month. Now, 19500000000 1000000000 billion doesn't even raise an eyebrow, where $17 billion back then was a disaster. The dollar was collapsing, bond yields were surging based on the fears of of what that type of trade deficit would do to the value of the dollar and to domestic inflation. Today, nobody really cares about the enormity of these trade deficits, but at some point they will care. Remember, it's never a crisis until it is. It doesn't matter until one day it matters. Right now, the trade deficits don't matter. They do matter, it's just that people don't realize it. But when the markets start to fear these trade deficits. That's what it matters. But I guess then it's too late because now you've got a crisis. We also got the Chicago PMI for February. Another weak number. The consensus was for 45. We got 43.6. Anything below 50 is basically contraction. And we're way below 50. In fact, the prior month was 44.3. So the consensus forecast was for an improvement. From January to February. Instead, we went the other way and the Chicago PMI was weaker in February than the weak number that we had in January. Look at the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index. Same story. It was negative 11 in January. The consensus was for an improvement to negative five. Still a weak number, but not as weak as negative 11. Instead, the index dropped to negative 16 way worse than the lowest estimate, which was negative five. So again, we keep getting number after number that disappoints to the weak side on manufacturing. This flies in the face of a soft landing narrative because it suggests that if we land at all, it's not going to be soft. But maybe this is one of the reasons that investors are believing that we're nearing the end of the rate hike cycle. We're going to get a pause followed by a pivot where we get our first cut. Looking at the PMI manufacturing number, this is the final for February. It came out at 47.3 versus expectations of 47.8. Once again, a weak number that was even weaker than the markets expected. Again, same story with the ISM manufacturing index for February. They were looking for 48, a weak number. They got an even weaker 47.7. The only thing was it was a slight improvement over the 47.4 in January, but back-to-back weak months in the ISM manufacturing numbers, looking at construction spending, again, January number, it was supposed to come out at plus 0.2. Again, a disappointing number. It came out at minus 0.1, and they revised down the December number which was originally reported at minus 0.4, and that was revised to minus 0.7. All of this weak economic data coming out in the same week, and I'm not even finished. We got the productivity and cost numbers for the fourth quarter, and anybody who is hoping that the Fed is winning the inflation battle, these numbers throw cold water all over that narrative. First of all, On the productivity side, the estimate was for an increase of 2.5%, which would have been a slowdown from the 3% gain in Q3. Instead, productivity only rose by 1.7%. And worse, unit labor costs, which were supposed to rise by 1.4%, which would have been a bigger rise than the 1.1 in Q3, they spiked by 3.2%. That is a surge in unit labor costs. So we have lower productivity, higher labor costs. This is not good if you think inflation is under control. The best way to control prices is with increasing productivity, but we're not getting that. What we're getting is increasing costs. And by the way, unit labor costs don't just mean wages. So when you see that unit labor costs are up, that doesn't mean that workers are getting paid more money. They may be, but that's only one component of labor costs. For example, a big component is healthcare costs. Because when you employ people, if the employer is responsible for paying their health insurance, if premiums goes up, that increases unit labor costs. It doesn't benefit the worker that his health insurance is now more expensive because he's getting the same policy, his wages aren't going up, and in many cases, he's not getting the same policy. Sometimes what happens is even though the insurance companies raise their rates, they also raise the deductibles, raise the co-pays. So you're actually getting a less valuable insurance policy. Your employer is just paying more money to provide it to you. And that's running up labor costs. Also regulations, taxes, a lot of things increase labor costs, but they don't put more money in workers' pockets. In fact, a lot of things that the government does to increase labor costs results in fewer people getting hired because the government makes it so expensive to hire people that businesses try to avoid hiring where they can. And so they hire fewer people as a result of these rising labor costs. But all of this flies in the face of the narrative that inflation is coming under control.
1: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
0: Finally, today, we got some numbers that were a little bit better than expected. We got the PMI composite for February. That came in at 50.1. In fact, I'm not even sure what the consensus was, but I think this was slightly ahead of it. Same thing for the ISM services index for February. They were looking for 54.5, and we ended up with 55.1. So these are the only data points of the week, really, That were a little bit better than estimate. But again, I think these were the outliers, the exception to the rule. The rule was weak economic data, but not only weak economic data, but inflationary data, not just with the weakness in productivity and spiking labor costs, but the fact that all of the manufacturing output is low. We need more supply. Well, we're not getting it, we're not producing more, we're certainly consuming. And so where are we going to get the goods if we're not producing them? We are going to import them. That's what you saw with a merchandise trade deficit. We are importing the merchandise that we don't have the industrial capacity to produce. And this is driving up our trade deficits, which will ultimately drive down the value of the dollar and push up domestic consumer prices. Of course, most of the optimism on the Fed pausing and eventually cutting is not even so much about the economy weakening, but about inflation weakening, and in fact, weaker inflation is supposed to be a positive trade-off for weaker economic growth. Most people believe if growth slows, that's going to cool inflation. In fact, most people believe if unemployment really rises, that's going to bring down inflation. In fact, a lot of people believe that rising unemployment is necessary to bringing down inflation. They are still stuck in this Phillips curve mindset that High inflation is a function of low unemployment, and low inflation is a function of high unemployment. Neither of those is true, but that doesn't stop people from believing it. But I want to spend a little more time, again, talking about how difficult it's going to be to get the inflation rate back down to 2%. In fact, the years that we enjoyed of sub-2% inflation, those were the aberrations. They're not coming back. But rather than focus on inflation in the U.S., I want to talk a little bit about inflation in the Eurozone because we got a lot of economic data that came out this week on Eurozone inflation. First of all, we got the numbers for Germany. CPI in Germany for February rose 0.8% on the month, a little bit hotter than the 07 that was expected, but not quite as bad as the 1% from January. But the year-over-year increase in consumer prices in Germany held steady at 8.7%. This is a huge inflation rate. Remember, it was Germany that experienced the hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic. So the Bundesbank was the one central bank that was most committed to making sure that inflation stayed under control. So this number has to be particularly troubling. For the hardliners at the Bundesbank, who are having to tolerate now 8.7% inflation because of the massive monetary policy mistakes that they knew the ECB was making. But they allowed the ECB to get away with it because they were able to claim that inflation was under 2% and somehow they needed to lift the rate. And so they basically allowed this asinine policy. And now they're having to lie in the bed that they helped make. Look at the Italian CPI, even worse, although the monthly number, not as bad, up 0.3. But year-over-year CPI in Italy, 9.2%. But let's take a look at the overall rate for Germany. The year-over-year rate in January was 8.5%. And they were expecting a decline to 8.2%, in February. Instead, they revised the December number from 8.5 up to 8.6, so even worse. And instead of coming down to 8.2 in February, it came down to 8.5, where they originally thought January was until it was revised upwards. So bad news on inflation. Despite the fact that the European Central Bank has brought rates from zero to 2.5, they still have 8.5% inflation. And even if you look at the core, the expectation was for 5.3, which would have been a little hotter than the 5.2 from January. Instead, they raised the January number up to 5.3, but the February number was even hotter at 5.6. They have a huge inflation problem in the Eurozone. If you remember the days of negative interest rates in Germany, because it wasn't that long ago where the ECB held interest rates in negative territory. Now, why were they doing that? I remember all the Draghi press conferences when he was talking about how inflation was below their target. And as a result, they really needed more inflation. Now, what was the ECB's target? If you remember those press conferences, what Mario Draghi was saying was that the mandate for the ECB was to have inflation close to but below 2%. So they had to stay below, not even 2%. They needed to be below 2%. And apparently they weren't close enough. Look at the inflation rates from 2017, 2018, and 2019. Inflation in the Eurozone, as measured by their consumer price index, was 1.54% in 2017. It was 1.74% in 2018 and 1.21% in 2019. Now, to me, it sounds like they pretty much met their mandate. All three of those years are close to but below 2%. By what standard could you possibly conclude that these numbers did not satisfy the condition of being close to yet under 2%, especially 2018? one74 if your goal is to be close to but under 2%. The most you could be realistically is 1.99. 1.74 is 25 basis points below 1.99. If the Bundesbank's real goal was to have inflation close to but below 2%, that they would have been satisfied with 1.74. After all, you can't really get much closer without risking going over because according to the ECB, this was like the price is right because if you were over 2%, you were out. You had to stay under. Well, they were under. Yet despite the fact that they were barely under, they decided to hold interest rates negative. The deposit rate in the Eurozone in 2017 and 2018 was minus 0.4. Even though inflation was only 25 basis points below what they claimed to be their target, and if they missed their target slightly and instead pushed inflation up by 27 basis points, they would have been over 2% and violated their mandate. Yet despite that risk of an overshoot, they thought it was so important that they eke out another 25 basis points. They had negative interest rates. They were doing their asset purchase program, their own version of quantitative easing. Why do you have the monetary pedal to the metal when you're so close to your target? Aren't you worried about overshooting, which of course is exactly what they did. And in fact, what the ECB did is they actually lowered interest rates in 2019 because they dropped the deposit rate from minus 0.4 to minus 0.5 because they wanted to push the inflation rate closer to 2% than it was. Think about it. In 2018, they were at 1.74 and all hell was breaking loose. This was an emergency. We're at 25 basis points below 2%. We need negative interest rates. We need massive quantitative easing because we got to get the inflation rate even closer to 2% than it is right now. First of all, what's so magic about being just under 2%? And why can't you be 25 basis points below 2%? Why do you have to be one basis point below 2%? It's like horseshoes. If you throw a horseshoe and you're the closest to the stake, you still win. The ECB didn't need to toss a ringer dead on 1.99%. 1.74% was close enough to win. They should have been satisfied with 1.74%, but no, they wanted to see just how close to 2% they could come without actually hitting it. Now, they're at 8.5%. So instead of being below their target by 25 basis points, they're above their target by 650 basis points. Was it really worth it? Also, the idea that the ideal inflation rate was just below 2% was made up anyway. The ideal inflation rate could just as easily be just below 1.8% or 1.7%. They made the whole thing up. They have no proof that 1.99% inflation is better than 1.69% inflation. They just picked this number out of a hat. Again, they didn't really pick it out of a hat. It was the Central Bank of New Zealand that came up with 2% as a ceiling. And somehow the ECB adopted the ceiling that was erected down in New Zealand, but where did New Zealand come up with 2%? They made it up. So to risk everything, to have this unprecedented monetary stimulus, negative interest rates, quantitative easing, in pursuit of a made up goal where there's absolutely no proof that the 1.99% inflation was somehow any better for the economy than 1.74% was sheer lunacy. And the only thing more ridiculous than the ECB telling that lie was that the public believed it, that all the reporters at the press conference ate it up. Nobody threw this back in Draghi's face and explained how completely asinine this so-called policy was and the incredible risk that the ECB was taking to achieve this made-up goal, now how can they possibly get back down below two percent from where they are? You would imagine that, given how hard the ECB worked to raise the inflation rate from 1.74 to 1.99, negative interest rates—something unheard of in monetary policy—and massive quantitative easing, shouldn't they be working even harder when they're at eight and a half, when they're 651 basis points? above their 1.99% target, why are interest rates still 2.5%? Why aren't they 10%? Why aren't they just as draconian to bring inflation down as they were to bring inflation up, especially when they have a lot further to go to bring inflation back down than they did to push it up? Why are they not shrinking their balance sheet? Yes, they stopped their QE program, but they're not shrinking their balance sheet. They're just holding it steady. Why not an emergency Quantitative tightening policy. After all, look how far above their 2% target they are at 8.5%. Look, I pointed out in real time that Draghi was full of shit when he was saying that we needed more inflation. I said they needed more inflation like a hole in the head. And I talked about in 2018 that they were going to end up overshooting, that they're not going to be able to micromanage the inflation rate so precisely that they can move it up from 1.74 to 1.99. Instead, they moved it up to 8.5. Good luck getting it back down. It is impossible. It's not going to happen in the Eurozone. It's not going to happen in the U.S. Inflation is here to stay. The 2020s will be known as a decade of high inflation. Ultimately, the 2020s are more inflationary than the 1970s, and the Fed is further behind the curve in fighting inflation now than it was in 1973, and it has a much more difficult task at hand, given how much money has already been printed and how much debt already exists, fighting inflation, bringing it back down to 2% is much harder. The only thing that's easier is that 4% is the new 2% because of the way we measure prices. Now, if the CPI is 4%, that's 2% based on the way we used to calculate prices, But I don't even think we can get back down to 4%. We're not going to get anywhere near 4%. You got guys like Jeremy Siegel, I saw on CNBC today. He is pounding the table that the Fed has got it wrong now, that they've already won the inflation fight, and that they should surrender. Now, he was correct years ago when he said the Fed was behind the curve and that there was an inflation problem that the Fed failed to acknowledge. But he's wrong now in thinking the problem is solved. All he's doing is pointing to the big corrections we've had in some commodity prices and what he's seeing in real estate and saying, you see, prices are coming down. This means the inflation problem is over. He's wrong. These are corrections in bull markets. These commodity prices that are falling now will soon be rising and hitting new highs. We're not even close to solving this inflation problem. Jeremy Siegel is completely wrong.
1: Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com/disclosures for details.
0: But getting back to the point I was making with the ECB and Mario Draghi, I was calling out this BS in real time. I knew that it was complete nonsense for a central banker to claim that 1.7 percent inflation wasn't quite enough, and that the central bankers were adept enough to be able to turn up the inflation dial with precision and they could ratchet it up from 1.74 to 1.99-ish without going over. I knew that to even suggest that was asinine. Yet nobody in the mainstream media called out Draghi or the ECB for something so preposterous. After all, if your goal is to have inflation close to but below 2%, you succeeded at one74 I would say they succeeded at 1.54. I would say even 1.21 in 2019, the rate that prompted them to cut rates from negative 0.4 to negative 0.5, that was still a success. After all, when inflation was 1.21, they were 78 basis points below 1.99. They were a lot closer to their inflation target when inflation was 1.21% than they are now when it's 8.5%. Was it really worth it to try to get inflation a little bit higher, to overshoot by that much? And given how concerned they were when inflation was only 1.21% that they cut rates, why aren't they more aggressive right now? Why aren't they far more aggressive? Rates are still super low in the Eurozone. They're not shrinking their balance sheet. They're not working nearly as hard to reduce an 8.5% inflation rate down to 1.99 as they were working to increase an inflation rate from 1.74% up to 1.99%. This proves that the whole thing was a lie from the beginning. What the ECB was doing was making an excuse. It wasn't the economy that needed more inflation. It was overly indebted European governments. That's who needed more inflation. Draghi needed an excuse to continue his asset-backed purchase program to bail out Italy, to bail out Greece, to bail out Spain. So he did that under the pretense of there not being enough inflation. And he had to keep interest rates artificially low so overly indebted governments could afford to service their debt. And of course, in the process, the entire economy got overly indebted and the Eurozone didn't want to see a strengthening Euro against the dollar And since we had interest rates at zero, the only way to have interest rates lower than zero was to go negative. So that's exactly what they did. But the idea that they were doing this because the economy needed more inflation was complete nonsense. And I called them out and I was the only one doing it. And I can't believe that even today, no reporters, nobody is criticizing the central bankers for what they did. Look at some of these ECB press conferences. Now, nobody asks them about this and nobody puts the blame for today's 8.5% inflation on all the years that the ECB held interest rates negative under the guise that they didn't have enough inflation. Their goal was to create inflation. They succeeded. They created inflation, just a lot more than they bargained for. Now the genie, as I said, is out of the bottle. How are they gonna put it back in? How are they going to get 8.5% inflation back down to 1.99%? They sure as hell aren't going to do it with 2.5% interest rates. They're not going to do it with a bloated balance sheet like the one they have now. They're not going to do it with governments in the Eurozone deficit spending. They don't have a clue. Neither the ECB nor the Federal Reserve has a prayer in hell of bringing inflation anywhere near 2%. Yet markets still expect this to happen. Because they got lulled into this false sense of complacency. Just because we had several years of below 2% inflation, they think the central banks can do it again. It's not going to happen. It was pure circumstances, luck, sleight of hand that enabled those years of sub 2% inflation. But it was the monetary policy that was going on during the years that inflation was below 2% is precisely why it's never going back down there again, at least not anytime soon, certainly not between now and the end of this decade, which is why I said the 2020s are the decade of inflation. This is the 1970s show all over again, only on steroids. Across the pond over at the Federal Reserve, there was another news story that got very little coverage. And that's the fact that the Federal Reserve booked a $126 billion loss in the month of February. That is a staggering amount of money. That is unprecedented. In fact, in 2022, the Federal Reserve had a net profit of $58.4 million for the entire year, yet they lost more than twice that much in one month. In fact, if you look at the biggest gain the Federal Reserve ever achieved in a single year, it was in 2021 where the Fed reported a profit of $104 billion. They lost more than that in February alone. Now, what is the significance of this massive loss? The way it works, when the Fed makes a profit, they pay that profit to the U.S. Treasury. And they've been paying those profits to the Treasury for years, and that has helped reduce our deficits. Now, our deficits are still huge, but they're slightly less huge thanks to the checks. That they've been getting for the Federal Reserve. Well, in February, they didn't get a check. They got a $126 billion bill. And now these bills are going to add up because just like when they have a profit, they pay that to the Treasury, when they have a loss, the Treasury has to reimburse the Federal Reserve to make up that loss. So this is going to compound the problems that the Fed has in its inflation fight because where is the US Treasury? going to get the money to pay the Federal Reserve to cover those losses, because the U.S. Treasury is already running massive deficits. Now they're going to have to run even bigger deficits than the ones they're running. And where are they going to get that money? Ultimately, from the Fed itself, the Fed is going to have to print up extra money so that the Treasury can repay the Federal Reserve for its losses. And believe me, the Fed's losses are just getting started. The Fed is going to break its record and it's ultimately going to have months where it loses even more than 126 billion. Remember, there were only 28 days in February. And if they could lose 126 billion in 21 days, wonder how much they can lose in March. We got 31 days in this month. The profits that the Fed made during the years of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing sowed the seeds for the much larger losses. That it's only now beginning to experience it's like a massive hedge fund they made a lot of money when the bubble was inflating and then they go broke as the air comes out well the fed can't go broke because the u.s government is on the hook to cover their losses which means the american people are the ones that go broke only they're going to end up paying the price in the form of inflation higher prices that is how the american people are going to cover the fed's losses by enduring even higher inflation and they're going to pay the price at the supermarket and the gas station and anywhere they spend rapidly depreciating u.s dollars this is just another reason why it's going to be so difficult to put this inflation genie back in the bottle because ultimately the driving force behind inflation is government debt because the fed ends up monetizing it well now because of the position that the Fed put itself in, debt is going to spiral out of control, which means inflation is going to run away. You know, the ultimate irony is I was listening to an interview on CNBC with Kathy Wood, who always talks her book, and the way she was talking it up on this interview was she claimed that we really didn't have this inflation problem because of technology and that the government's measures of inflation were inadequate, in today's economy, according to Kathy Wood, inflation is actually much lower than what the CPI reveals. And we actually have a lot more economic growth than what we see in this antiquated GDP. So, in other words, the government is overstating inflation and understating economic growth, when in fact, the opposite is what's true. The government is understating inflation and overstating growth. But Kathy Wood has no clue about that. She's just trying to come up with some way to justify investing in her fund when the only smart thing to do with the Kathy Wood fund is to sell it because the longer you hold it, the less it's gonna be worth. In fact, it's the share price of a Kathy Wood fund that over the long run is one of the few things that's actually gonna go down in price. Now, another thing that's gonna buck the inflation trend and fall in price is Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I would get to Bitcoin later in the podcast, and I guess I've reached that point. Last night, Bitcoin did one of its famous mini flash crashes where it dropped about 6% in, I don't know, 5 or 10 minutes. It fell from about 23,400 all the way down to 22,000. And the catalyst that sparked the sell-off was the news that Silvergate, and this is the bank that's been having a lot of problems because it's specialized in lending to crypto and other blockchain-related companies, is likely to file for bankruptcy. And as a result of that announcement, shares of Silvergate hit a new low today of $4.85. The 52-week high is $162.65, so it's already practically at zero. Now, Silvergate actually managed to rally and close up almost 1% on the day, probably a lot of short covering on this news. But the stock is not out of the woods. I'm sure there's still more downside, especially if they follow through with a bankruptcy, which looks very likely. But all this, of course, should be casting more doubt on the whole idea that this blockchain revolution is changing the world, that this is early in this massive bull market, that institutional money is going to be flooding into the space. How can this premier bank, the bank that was going to bank All of these DeFi companies and blockchain companies, they are on the cutting edge of this new revolution. They've gone bankrupt. This is a massive red flag in a sea of red flags that is a huge warning sign to all potential investors to stay away from this market. The biggest players in this space have gone bankrupt. Sure, Bitcoin itself is still there. Ethereum is still there. But so what? The big money that entered the space is now leaving. The losses are staggering and they're building, and you have all these frauds, and now you have the regulators coming in. It's only a matter of time before the final shoe drops and the bottom drops out of these cryptocurrencies. And I think it's going to happen this year. I think that rally that we had in January is likely to be the swan song for Bitcoin. And all the other shit coins that are out there, that was the last chance that people had to get out at a high price. Now, of course, any price is a high price when your ultimate destination is zero. But very few people are going to end up selling into the collapse. They had an opportunity. They had a rally. they, They could have sold the rip. But now they're going to hold and hope for the mother of all dips. But getting back to other markets, the U.S. dollar index sold off about 70 basis points on the week. It ended last week at 105.20 and closed this week at 104.5. And the dollar weakened despite the backup in interest rates, particularly on the short end of the curve. Now, normally, higher short-term interest rates would be bullish for the dollar. The fact that the dollar sold off, despite that increase in short term interest rates, may indicate that this correction has run its course and that the dollar has peaked and has now rolled over. And if that is the case, not only do I think the dollar index will sell off to new lows from this particular cycle, but I think it's headed far lower than that. And that is really going to complicate the Fed's effort at trying to bring down inflation. Because the weakness in the dollar, I think, is going to be the catalyst for a bigger rally in commodity prices, in particular oil prices, which were also a bit firmer on the week. Oil finished last week at 77.14, and it ended this week at 79.68, so right against that $80 level. But I do think if we do see a breakdown in the dollar, we will see a breakout in crude and oil prices could lead other commodity prices higher, providing more evidence that the fight against inflation is hardly over. In fact, inflation is likely to counter with the knockout blow, knocking out the economy, the market, and exposing the false narrative that the Fed has conquered inflation and that soon it will be back to 2%. Not only will the inflation is over narrative fall apart, But so will the prospects of a soft landing, the case for which is being constantly disproven not only by the economic data, but by the inverting yield curve. Take a look at what happened to interest rates during the week as short-term rates continued to move higher while the yield on a 30-year U.S. Treasury actually moved lower on the week. In fact, it's the only maturity that saw a decline in yield on the week. The 30-year yield went from 3.94% at the close of last week to 3.88% for the close of this week, inverting with the 10. The yield on the 10-year inched up from 3.95 to 3.96, so you can earn more interest on a 10-year treasury than you can on a 30-year treasury, despite the fact that a 30-year treasury has 20 more years of inflation risk. Obviously, investors don't perceive any risk for inflation 10 to 30 years out. They just assume that the Fed will succeed by then in reducing inflation back down to 2%. They are completely clueless. But now look at the shorter-term maturities. The five-year yield rose from 4.21 to 4.25. The yield on a two-year is now at 4.86. A one-year is 5% even, and a six-month Treasury bill Now yields 5.11%. That is the peak of the yield curve. And that means you have an inverted yield curve all the way from six months to 30 years with yields declining consistently the longer the maturity. An inverted yield curve is the most reliable recession indicator that we have, and it is flashing red. And in fact, not only were bond yields up on the week, But look at mortgages. The yield on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is now back above 7%. This is going to further complicate the problems that are already developing in the housing market. But getting back to the yield curve, the only positive slope left is the difference between the yield on a three-month treasury bill and a six-month treasury bill. The yield on a six-month treasury at 511 exceeds the yield on a three-month treasury at 4.84 but the fact that a one-year treasury is only five what that tells you is that bond investors expect that six to 12 months from now the yields will be lower than they are right now so not only do investors expect the terminal rate to be achieved within the next six months but sometime between the next six months to a year the markets expect the Fed to begin cutting interest rates. And why do the markets think that the Fed will start cutting interest rates as soon as six months from now? Because the markets expect recession and the markets expect this recession to bring down inflation and result in the Fed pivoting to cut interest rates. What the markets still don't get is that even if we end up in a recession, in fact, even if we end up in a financial crisis, The inflation rate is not coming down. In fact, I believe the next recession will be a catalyst to send inflation to new highs. And so bond market investors should not be buying bonds because inflation is going to come down. They should be selling them because inflation is going to go up. They still don't get the reality of stagflation. And they still don't understand that you can have stronger inflation in a weaker economy. And in fact, this economy is going to be so weak that it's going to supercharge inflation because the fed is going to be forced to respond not only to the weakness in the economy but in particular the weakness in financial markets and the precarious fiscal position of the u.s government by unleashing massive inflation maybe even more than unleashed during the lockdown periods of covid and that is going to send the inflation rate to new highs and bond prices to new lows. And so the losses that investors suffered last year in bonds, I think, could pale in comparison to the losses they may suffer this year when reality finally sets in and the bond vigilantes wake up. I want to wrap up today's podcast, though, by giving everybody the heads up to another potential hit piece that's being concocted by the Australian media. This time, it's ABC News, their Four Corners program This new episode is going to air Monday night at 8.30 p.m. in Australia, which means sometime Monday morning, early afternoon, depending on where you live in the world. Most of my audience, obviously not down under, and they'll be able to watch this on the internet sometime on Sunday. But the target of the hit piece is the Perth Mint. The title of this so-called documentary is Tainted Gold, Inside Perth Mint's Billion Dollar Scandal. And what it appears they're going to be accusing the Perth Mint of doing is helping organized criminals launder their money and evade taxes using gold. And if you look at the promo, it's pretty clear that the producers hate gold and they somehow think that the only people who would want to own gold are criminals trying to launder money or evade taxes. Clearly, that is not the case, but you have a bunch of left wingers who run this broadcast and who just don't like gold. They don't like it because it competes with fiat money, because it competes with state power. They don't understand why law-abiding people fear inflation, don't trust governments or their fiat currencies, and prefer to store their legitimate wealth in gold or other precious metals. You don't need to be a criminal. You don't need to be trying to evade tax or launder money to be interested in owning gold. One of the things that I think ABC is going to be using as evidence is likely to be the relationship that the Perth Mint has had with me and or my bank, Your Pacific Bank, my broker-dealer, Your Pacific Capital, now Alliance Global Partners, has been an approved dealer for the Perth Mint going all the way back to 2002. So I've been doing business with Perth for better than 20 years. And of course, my bank, use Perth Mint to buy and sell and store precious metals on behalf of the clients. The Australian public already believes that I'm this notorious tax evader money launderer. I've already been accused of using my bank to help organize criminals evade taxes and launder money. In fact, I've been accused of being on double secret probation down there in Australia. Supposedly, I'm on this risk of Australia's greatest threats. So the public already believes this based on the false allegations by 60 Minutes. And those false allegations made in Australia were only embellished recently when the Puerto Rican government decided to shut my bank down under the pretense of inadequate capital, but then invited the IRS and members of the J5, including the top tax cop from Australia, to talk publicly about how they had all suspected that my bank was helping people launder money and transfer money anonymously using numbered accounts. Of course, they never bothered to point out that none of those suspicious turned out to be factual. Yes, they believed prior to the investigation that we had numbered accounts and my bank was enabling the anonymous transfer of funds. But once they actually conducted their audits, they found out that none of that was true but they didn't bother to make those findings known to the public. All they talked about was what they once suspected before they did the investigation. They never once acknowledged what they found out after the investigation was completed because they didn't want the public to know what they found out because what they found out was that the bank did nothing wrong. They just wanted the public to know what they suspected the bank of doing wrong before they figured out that it did nothing wrong. And I think one of the red herrings that they're likely to raise is point to the fact that my bank had an omnibus account with the Perth Mint and the Perth Mint did not know the identity of the beneficial owners. And somehow linking that to enabling tax evasion and money laundering, it didn't matter if the Perth Mint didn't know the identity, my bank did. We didn't have any anonymous accounts. Every account had a name and therefore people were not able to use the Perth Mint to circumvent AML or KYC because the bank was doing it. The type of account that my bank had with the Perth Mint is the same type of account that my bank had with all of the correspondent banks that we did business with. When we had euro deposits or dollar deposits or Swiss franc deposits for clients, we would redeposit that money in an omnibus account at a correspondent bank. That correspondent bank that was holding fiat currency had no idea who the beneficial owners were. The only owner they knew was the bank. That's exactly the same thing at the Perth Mint. So the fact that the Perth Mint gave my bank an omnibus account is no different than any other major bank that we worked with that also gave us omnibus accounts. Those banks didn't know the beneficial owners on our books any more than Perth Mint did. And so Perth is no more guilty of, of facilitating money laundering or tax evasion than any other major bank that we worked with. In fact, every bank that is involved in correspondent banking does not know the beneficial owner of all those deposits. Those That KYC and AML is done at the level of the bank that is accepting the deposits, not at the bank that is reaccepting those same deposits from another bank that already vetted the customers. And so this whole thing is made up They are going after the Perth Mint most likely with the the same type of bogus, contrived, quasi-circumstantial evidence that they used against me at 60 Minutes in Australia. I am still involved in my defamation lawsuit against 60 Minutes. The lawyers who are representing me in that lawsuit just sent a letter to the producers of the Four Corners warning them that they better not repeat the same false accusations against me or my bank that were already made by 60 Minutes. And if they do, I may have to file another defamation lawsuit against them. I'm hoping I don't have to do that because I'm spending so much money on the first one and nine is doing everything it can to drag out the process and run up my costs they know that they are going to lose. Clearly, they have to know that because they have absolutely no proof that anything they accuse me of doing is true, despite the fact that their defense to content that has already been ruled defamatory by the judges in Australia, their defense is that what they accuse me of doing is true when everything they accuse me of doing is demonstrably false and there isn't a kernel of evidence to support its truth. I made sure to put the producers of Four Corners on notice, they better not rehash these false allegations unless they have proof. And I challenge them that if they have any proof that either me, my bank, or any employee officer or director of my bank in any way facilitated money laundering or tax evasion, they had better provide that proof to me in advance and give me an opportunity to refute it Otherwise, they better keep my name and the bank's name completely out of this broadcast. But based on the way the promo had been edited, I don't see any references to me or my bank. But if you read the description of what they're accusing the Perth Mint of doing, I think the only evidence that they would able to bring forth would be my bank, because everything they're saying the Perth Mint did is what my bank was falsely accused of doing. And I don't know any other way that four corners could connect these dots other than trying to connect the Perth Mint to my bank. So we're going to see, I'm going to watch this program. Hopefully it's not the same type of hit piece done by 60 Minutes. And hopefully they take a look at the facts and don't make accusations without actually being able to back them up. But based on my own personal experience with the Australian media, I'm not going to get my hopes up. And if this broadcast ends up making the same type of false accusations as 60 Minutes Australia, I'm likely going to record another response video similar to the response video I made when 60 Minutes came after me, addressing each and every false accusation made by the producers and providing an alternative truthful accounting of the facts.